Well, it's so good to be here this evening in the St. Louis area and to fellowship with you, dear brethren of the faith. Uh, our dear brother, Pastor Thurman, has spoken so highly of all you, dear brethren, mentioned you by name many, many times. And it's so good to be able to come uh, to St. Louis and to meet you in person and to fellowship in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a wonderful Savior, don't we? Well, this evening, my topic, which I have been assigned, is the progressive revelation of truth. And we would like you to turn in your scriptures, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis and the third chapter. It's been a blessing thus far as we have been here in St. Louis to be with the brethren at the board meetings and also at the opening sessions today as we were able to discuss spiritual things this morning and this afternoon. And one of the greatest things that has impressed me most is the wonderful spirit that there has been among the brethren. We just had an excellent discussion this afternoon on justification. And what impressed me, it was not the attitude who's right or who's wrong, but what is the truth. And brethren, that should always be our attitude. What is the truth? That is the source which we want to search out, and we trust we will this evening. As we look at Genesis chapter 3, we see the opening scriptures of God's Word, God's wonderful full Word. We see that it was given over a 1,500-year period through some 40 different authors, most of whom were not contemporary one to the other. And we see as God had raised up these holy men unto himself and as he departed his revelation to these 40 different authors, we see as we look at the origin of our scriptures that it is a hundred percent of human authorship, yet it is 100 percent the literal word of God. And as we look at those 40 authors, most of whom were not contemporary one to the other, we, we see that there is an amazing continuity, an amazing agreement through the entirety of the Word of God. My, today, as you would pick up any book off of any bookshelf uh, that has been written by two or three authors or a co-author, there is normally disagreement among two men, much less 40 different men. But all oh, we have the infallible, inerrant Word of God. And one of the things that has impressed me most about the Word of God is that it is effective. It always produces and always says and produces what it has stated. And as we think about that, we see that it is trustworthy. It is true. It can be totally relied upon at all times. Now, there are few things in this world system round about us that can be depended upon at all times. 
As I think about a little story that comes to mind, it's concerning a salesman. And this salesman was selling vacuum cleaners. And he had left his company one day and he went far, far out into the country. And as he had done so, he knocks on the door of this home way out in the country and the lady of the house comes and she answers the door. As she does, this salesman requests that he might be able to come in and that he might be able to present to her his product. Well, she invited him in. And lo and behold, he comes in and he opens this big satchel and he pulls out his vacuum cleaner and he begins to describe to her how wonderful this vacuum cleaner is. And the lady of the house said, but, but, no, no, lady, uh, no, no buts about it. I want to share this with you. You just allow me to present my product to you. I want to show to you and demonstrate to you how effective this product is. And so he went into a high-pressured sales pitch at the quality of this vacuum cleaner, and he says, Madame, you have to be very, very careful, madam, uh, that when you are running this on the carpet, uh, it is so powerful that it even picks up the carpet sometimes. And so to demonstrate his point, he went to the fireplace and he took a big shovel of ashes. And boy, he just sprinkled them all over her uh, new rug. And she says, but no, no, you just uh, remain quiet and watch. And he took out of his pocket this uh, uh, bag of wood chips and feathers and he sprinkled it all over the rug. And uh, she's standing there at this point speechless. And finally, he says to her, if this vacuum cleaner won't pick up every ounce of dirt, I'll eat every bit that remains. And he paused. And she said, you better start eating because we don't have any electricity. <laughs> now, as we think about that, needless to say, that salesman was put in a very awkward position, wasn't he? and we see that his product was rendered ineffective. But, oh, beloved ones, as we come to the product of God's holy word, God's word will never fail you. God's word will never be rendered ineffective. When God tells us through the Pauline epistles that after we are saved, if we will live our lives according to the principles that he has set forth in the Pauline epistles for the church, the body of Jesus Christ today, we see as we give heed to those principles of the faith, it is going to change our lives. God tells us it is going to change our lives. And as I have visited with many of the dear saints here, I see it has changed your lives. It has produced an interest in spiritual things. So what a blessing that we can depend entirely upon the Word of God. Now, when we begin to discuss progressive revelation of truth, we would like from the very outset for you to be familiar with what we mean by revelation. When we talk about revelation, we are not necessarily referring to the book of Revelation, the last book of our Bible, or the Apocalypse. 
but instead we are referring to revelation in the sense that God has imparted truth to mankind. And as we think about that, apart from the impartation of truth to mankind, there would be no possible way in which we could know the mind and will of God. I would not possibly be able to know that I was not right with God and I was a sinner and I was going to spend eternity in the lake of fire unless God told me so. I would not possibly be able to understand that I had a need of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem me from my sins unless God told me so in his word. And so as we think about revelation, it is the impartation of truth. And as we look at truth, what is truth? That question has been asked over the centuries by multitudes of people. Truth is something that is reliable and dependable. It is trustworthy. When God states that it will come to pass, indeed it came to pass as he so ordered. Truth is reliable and dependable. So as we see the revelation of truth in God's word, we must understand as believers that God's word is a progressive revelation. He has not given all truth to the first man, Adam. But in the eternal counsels, in the plans and purposes of God, as he planned and purposed all things before the foundation of the world, we see that he chose to reveal his divine will and mind progressively in his written word. And as he has done that, he has unfolded it very slowly over the ages or over the years as he dispensed it to man. As we begin to look at Genesis chapter 3, this evening we would like to consider with you the fall of man and also we would like to go on to share with you God's Redeemer, the one that God was going to send, the Redeemer who was going to redeem man from his sins. Now, as we begin this evening, we are going to use a few more scripture verses than what I'm used to usually using. Normally, I only turn the brethren in a preaching service to two or three scriptures. In a teaching service, why, we turn sometimes to a multitude of them. But this evening, because of the contents of our subject, we will be turning to a number of scriptures. So I trust that you'll bear with us as we do. As we look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, we are introduced in the word of God to the fall of man and how sin has entered in to the universe. In verse 1 we read, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, 
But of the tree, of, of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. As we look at the opening words of Genesis 3, we are introduced to Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve. As we look at the opening words, we see that now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God hath made, and he said unto the woman, This serpent spoke to Eve. As we look and as we would examine the text very closely, I believe this serpent originally in the garden was in an upright position. The reason I state that is because when God judged it after the fall, it then went slithering off on the ground in a sense and in a form of judgment. So originally, the serpent, which would be a reptile, was in an upright position, it appears, in some form. And it was a reptile of beauty. It was very graceful. And Satan chose this reptile to do his most disastrous work. And the serpent spoke to Eve. Genesis 3, I believe, is a literal, factual account. It is not a myth. It is not a fiction story. It is not an allegory. It's truth. It is truth that was imparted to Moses, I believe, by direct revelation because it's history. There is no possible way Moses could have known about this unless God directly imparted this historical account to him. As we look at this serpent addressing the woman, the serpent in itself did not have the capabilities of speech. But we see that Satan used that serpent as his instrument and tool to deceive the woman and to tempt her. And he says, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden. And as he made that statement, he was seeking to cast a doubt into the mind of the woman. Why, why did Satan choose the woman to begin with? Well, I would suggest to you this evening, because the woman had a less amount of experience on the earth compared to her husband, Adam. It seems that she was created very near this account of the temptation. And so he directed his address towards her. And as Adam and Eve were created and put in a perfect environment, God told them they could eat of all the trees of the Garden of Eden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil they were not to partake of. Now, God stated to Adam and Eve, In the day that ye eat of that tree, ye shall surely die. And we see as Satan is seeking to cast a doubt into Eve's mind, it goes on, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of all the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Here we see that that tree of knowledge of good and evil was an uncertain area in the life of Eve. 
she did not fully understand everything about that tree. And I don't believe God told her all of the consequences that would take place if they did partake. He says, don't you partake, for in the day you do, you're going to die. And he left it at that, and she was to obey. And Adam was to obey that command. But we see that she misquotes the word of God something that every Christian in this room ought to be very cautious of. She adds to it, and she takes away from it. Why, God does not say in Genesis 2, you shall not touch it. He says you're not to eat it. And also, as we see the exact quote, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And so as Satan sees her uncertainty, he seizes right on that area of uncertainty. And he says in verse 4, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. And he goes on, For God hath knows that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, then you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Why, in verse 5, he insinuates to her that God's kept something back from you, Eve. Why, you partake of that forbidden fruit and you're going to be like God. You'll be gods. You'll know the difference between good and evil. So he insinuates that God has kept something back from them, that God is guilty of doing this. And so as a temptation goes, we see it is a commotion of mind and she begins to think on these things, and as she does in verse 6, and when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eye, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Now, as she eats, the question has come, where was Adam all of this time? And in many of our pictures today, we see that normally he's way out there in the field somewhere, isn't he? But the scriptures state, if you look closely here at verse 6, and gave also unto her husband where? With her. Adam was standing right beside Eve in the garden that day, listening to every word that that serpent was saying. And Paul tells us that the woman was deceived. But Paul also instructs us that Adam was not deceived. And so Adam knew full well what the serpent was saying. You see, he became filled with pride. He wanted to be like the Most High God. He wanted to know the difference between good and evil. And so we see the first sin of the Bible is pride. If I were to say to you this evening, what is the worst sin in the sight of God? What would you think at this very moment? Let's turn, hold your place here, we'll be right back to Proverbs chapter 6. In Proverbs chapter 6, and in verse 16, Solomon writes these words. These six things doth the Lord hate, 
Yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Whenever Solomon writes in Proverbs 6 and verse 16, and he states that these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, that is what we call a Semitic expression. We have similar expressions we use in our English language. We say six on one hand and a half a dozen on another, or here a little and there a little. Here, Solomon uses a Semitic expression when it states that these uh, six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. He is referring that the list is incomplete, but he begins it. And notice what the Lord hates. First of all, murder, that's probably what you were thinking of, a proud look, pride. And as he goes on, a lying tongue. Why, these are things that come very close home in our Christian lives oftentimes that we are guilty of committing sometimes every day or once a month. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. You will notice the first three sins mentioned there were committed by Adam and Eve and Cain in Genesis 3 and 4. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. So we see from Genesis chapter 3 that man sins against his God. And we see that God came into the garden in the cool of the day and says, Adam, where art thou? And Adam had hid himself from the presence of God. Since that day in the garden, man has been hiding from God and God through his word has been searching mankind out. Sinner, where art thou? And because of Adam and Eve's transgression, they sin against God and sin is separation from the life and existence of God. The wages of sin is death. And this death was in a physical form, a spiritual form, and the possibility of eternal death. 930 years later, Adam died. But we see the spiritual death immediately activated, don't we? He hid himself from his creator. He knew that he had done something wrong. His eyes were opened. And just as Satan had said, you'll become gods, they became a god to themselves. And as we see man falling into sin, we were in Adam, we have sinned in him, we are his posterity, and we see we have inherited a sin nature. And we are separated from the life of God at our very birth. At this point, we see God could have judged the human race and he could have cast Adam and Eve into the lake of fire at that point and been perfectly just. But oh, in his mercy, he had planned and purposed, even though they had failed the test, to provide a redeemer for them. And as we look in Genesis 3.15, we see the first promise of the coming Redeemer. And here we begin to pick up the progression of revelation. 
progressive revelation concerning God sending the Redeemer. And in verse 15 he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That is the first promise in the Bible concerning the coming Redeemer in verse 15. And we see that as the Redeemer was to be sent, it was and he to be sent through the seed of the woman. And as the Redeemer was to come, he would crush the head of the serpent in judgment. Now I believe as we look at this text that Adam and Eve did not possibly understand all that was contained in that statement. Why, they did not understand that this Redeemer was going to be the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be the Son of God. I do not believe they understood any of those things. I also do not believe that God told them concerning the coming of his Son and that his Son would die on the cross and shed his blood for the remission of the sins of the world. Believe that, Adam and Eve, and you will be saved. They knew nothing about those things. That is anticipating revelation. We see that we have learned that from the Apostle Paul. And so oftentimes we are guilty of taking what we've learned from Paul and bringing it back into the Old Testament or prophetic scriptures and anticipate revelation. We can't do that, brethren. We must look at the step-by-step -step progression of God unfolding concerning the coming Redeemer. I believe all that Adam and Eve understood here is that there was one to be sent, and when he was to come, he would crush the head of that serpent. And I'm sure that was good news to them. As we look at this, I believe they understood at least one was to come. Let's look at Genesis 4 and verse 1. And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived, and bore Cain, and said, I have gotten, and here the Greek scholars tell me it's the definite article, the man from the Lord. Eve thought within herself that the promise was fulfilled that now Cain was the man that the Lord had promised through her seed. Little be known to her that that Redeemer was not to come for another 4,000 years. So here, all that Adam and Eve understood in this part of the Revelation, that one was to come and possibly he would provide the remedy. Maybe they understood that too, I'm not sure. But nonetheless, one was to come. As we go back to verse 15, we see that her seed, the seed of the woman, it shall bruise thy head or crush thy head, and the seed of the serpent shall bruise his heel. This shows to us as God is going to send his Redeemer in his plan and purpose 
that there was going to be an opposition and a struggle of Satan. God had planned to send him. Satan, we are going to see throughout the Scripture, is going to seek to hinder that coming seed. And so we might call it the great, great conflict of the ages that will take place in the sending of that seed. Let's turn now to Genesis chapter 22. As we come to Genesis chapter 22, we would like to begin to trace the seed through the scripture. God begins out very elementary. He begins to show us the seed coming through the human race. As we come to Genesis 22, we come to the account of a man by the name of Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham. Abraham, here in Genesis 22, is stated as having offered up his son Isaac. Let's read just a couple verses. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt, or test, if you please, Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Here, as we look at the progressive revelation of truth, God, nearly 2,100 years later, raises up a man by the name of Abraham. And through this man, as God saves him, he is going to send the chosen seed of the woman. And through Abraham, we know him to be the father of the Jewish nation, don't we, of the Hebrew nation. And now we are going to be establishing the chosen nation of God, Israel. And as God had raised up Abraham, he tests him. And in so testing him, he instructs him to take Isaac, his only son, the son of his old age. And any of you who have four children at an older age, there always seems to be such a closeness of a son and a father uh, in that relationship. And so it was with Abraham. He loved Isaac with all of his heart. He would have done anything uh, on his behalf. And so we see as the Lord God appears to Abraham, he instructs him to take Isaac to a mountain in, Mor in the land of Moriah and offer him up as a sacrifice. And as the voice of the Lord departed, from Abraham. I'm sure that evening he was somewhat troubled in his heart. He pondered what the Lord had said to him. Should I obey? Should I hearken unto the voice of the Lord? He has never failed me. And so as he sat there and as he pondered and as he meditated, I believe that evening, even before he got up to go to the land of Moriah, he had sacrificed Isaac in his mind. He had raised the knife as he envisioned it and he had brought it down and struck his son. 
dead. And as we look at their approach to Moriah, we see as we come down here to verse 9, it says, And they came to the place where God had told them of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Here Isaac, who most have suggested that he was about 25 years of age at this time, he was at the age of reasoning at least, because we know he asked his father, we have the wood and the fire and the knife, but father, where is the burnt offering? He was at least of the age of reasoning. But also we see that he was carrying the wood for the burnt offering. So he had to be of some age to be able to bear the wood. But the thing we want to point out to you here is that Isaac was submissive to his father's will. And he voluntarily laid down on that altar trusting his father and trusting the Lord God. And I believe in Abraham and in Isaac we see a type. In Abraham we see a type of God the Father who would not even spare his own son but sent him to die for the sins of the world willing to offer him as a sacrifice, the son of his love. And as Paul says in Colossians concerning God the Father and the Son, the son of his love. And we see that as we look at Isaac, he is a type of Christ in that he was obedient even unto death. So here we have the impartation of revelation through a type. And we see how God has dispensed his good news or his revelation even in types which are more fully revealed as we study the progressive revelation. But let's drop down as we look at this text further as we go here to verse 17 in the same chapter, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of thy enemy, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So here as God raises up Abraham, as we have an understanding of this type, as we understand the Pauline revelation now, we see that God is now saving Abraham to draw up a nation and to send the seed through that nation. And you know what Satan does? He turns his eyes off of the human race before the days of Noah as he tried to corrupt all flesh and he turns it right on Israel. And he aims his sights on Israel to somehow destroy that nation. Remember, we're witnessing the conflict of Satan and the Lord God Almighty as the Lord is fulfilling his promise of the Redeemer. As we would study Exodus chapter 1, we see one of the many attempts of Satan to snuff out this sea. We see in the days of Egypt, in Exodus chapter 1, that there was a Pharaoh who was raised up who knew not Joseph. You know, brethren, that passage troubled me for years. How in the world could there be a Pharaoh in Egypt that didn't know Joseph? 
Everybody knew Joseph in Israel and in Egypt. He had spared the world of uh, worldwide famine in at least Egypt. But we see that as there was a Pharaoh raised up who knew not Joseph, if you study Isaiah 52, verse 4, and we'll not turn there now, you will learn that there was a dynasty that was not of the Egyptians, but there was an Assyrian who had set his dynasty up there in Egypt, and that's why he knew not Joseph. And he oppressed, and he afflicted, the children of Israel and put taskmasters over them. And he saw that Israel was becoming so great and powerful in Egypt that he instructed the midwives to take the lives of the sons in Israel. All of the children that were male, that were born, the midwives were instructed by Pharaoh that they were to be put to death. Satan was working behind the scenes that Israel might not be able to propagate itself and destroy the nation. But God overruled in his sovereignty, and the seed continues on. And as we come to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see that a man by the name of David is uh, raised up by God, and he saves David. And David was one of the great kings in Israel. And because David was a man of war, God did not permit him to build the temple. But his son Solomon was to build the temple. But God gave David a promise. And he promised him that his house would be forever, that he would have a throne, that he would have a kingdom and a sphere of rule, and that he would raise up and preserve the royal seed of the family of David. And so now we see God narrowing it down to one family, the Davidic family. And he's sending the Redeemer through the seed of David. And what do you suppose Satan did at that point? Well, no need to go out in the nation anymore. He aims his sight right on the family of David. And beloved, in Second Chronicles 22 and verse 10, as you study the scriptures thoroughly, we see that there came a point in Israel's history where the royal family was down to one, a boy by the name of Joash. Athaliah was successful in destroying all the seed royal except one. And Joash became a faithful king unto Jehovah at this time, and God spared him. So we can see the progression in progressive revelation of God sending through the seed in the elementary form of the truth. Now let's turn to Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, we have numbers of prophecies, brethren, we could turn to for truth on the coming Redeemer. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, we have one of the very common ones. Here, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Here is a reference to the Messiah, or the Redeemer who was to come in the future. Now, as Isaiah records these words, 
I'm sure he did not understand all things about what God had instructed here or revealed to him. We must bear that in mind. Peter tells us that, that the prophets searched what, what they meant, the prophecy, and what manner of times these things should come to pass. And so we see that while Isaiah had many of the facts, he didn't understand all the significance to these facts. The thing we want to point out to, to you here about the Redeemer is this. Notice that for unto us a child is born. There is the humanity of Christ spoken of. Here he was to be born of the Virgin Mary. We know that, don't we? And that shows to us born of the seed of the woman, consistent with Genesis 3.15. But you know, that verse doesn't stop there. Notice it says, and unto us a son is what? Given, not born. The son is given. Here the son that was to be born at Bethlehem's manger was just not to be the son of Mary in the flesh, he was the eternal Son of God. Not born. Why, he's eternal. He's God. The Son could not be born, but given in the deity side. And so we see, as we would read on, he was wonderful, the Counselor. Notice the Almighty God. Why, this one that was to come was more than just a normal child. There was something unique. There was something unique about the one God was to send. Let's turn to Isaiah 53. Oh, don't get me excited. We'll be here all night. Isaiah 53, as we go on, as God unfolds bit by bit by bit. Here in Isaiah 53, this was written 750 years before the coming of Christ. And in verse 4 we read, Surely he hath bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. We have revealed further now, 750 years before the event was to take place, one was to come. And it is evident from the text here and in Psalm 22, this one who was to come was to die. But Isaiah does not here approach that in the form of good news. Why, you read the text very, very uh, meticulously, and you're going to see there's a tone of disappointment, of sorrow, like there's an injustice that is taking place here. We've sinned, but here he's bearing our iniquity. Why, Isaiah had the facts, but he didn't understand the significance of it either. And so here we point out to you that this now Redeemer is to die, according to this text and Psalm chapter 22. But also, we want you to look at verse 6. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We who? 
Well, I'll tell you, the average Acts 2 dispensationalist will run you right back here and tell you, here's the body of Christ. Why, that can't be at all. At this particular point, Isaiah is a Hebrew prophet of the Hebrew nation writing to them. And he is writing when, when he says, all we like sheep, that word sheep is always identified with Israel, isn't it? We're called the body and ambassadors. But the primary usage of the word sheep was always Israel. This Redeemer, in the scope of prophecy to this point, in the progressive revelation, was now to redeem Israel. Although they didn't fully understand it at this point, I don't believe. Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, lo and behold, isn't God's word effective? It says just what he was, it said it would do. God promised it, it's now fulfilled. And here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Here we now have the fulfillment of all of the prophecies that we have just considered. Christ has come, born of the virgin, of the seed of David, of the seed of Abraham. Progressively we have followed it through to this point that now his name is even given. Jesus, Jehovah saves. And who's he supposed to save according to this account? The body of Christ? Are we considered here? Nay. Here it says, his people. It refers back to Isaiah 53. As we go here over to Acts, or Acts 2, excuse me, Matthew 2, verse 16, we see that Herod is just vehement over that the wise men did not return. You know the wise men, I like that account. They came to Jerusalem and they asked King Herod, King Herod, where is the coming of the king of the Jews? He instructs them where he was to be born in Bethlehem, but we know at this point that Mary and Joseph had moved to Nazareth and the child was at least two years old, the Christ child. And here in verse 16, as you read the account there, Herod being vehement and Satan behind him, I believe, motivating him, seeks all of the children two years of age and under. So what does Satan do? He moves his sight off of the family of David and he aims it right at Christ. And he tries to take the Redeemer's life. Oh, but God overruled and overruled. Even when they went to push him over the cliff of Nazareth, he walked through the crowd. That had to be amazing. That fascinates me. He walked right through them. They probably were trying to get a hold of them, and he just passed right through them. Two more passages, brethren, and we'll close. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7, and you might want to get 2 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7, Paul in a further progressive revelation to him now is unfolded the great mystery program that was kept secret in the mind of God from the foundation of the world. 
as Paul is raised up and as he is sent to the Gentiles, we see at that point it was given to him to reveal all that God was doing in Christ there at Calvary's cross for the very first time. So in Paul's revelation, we have the progressive revelation coming to its greatest height and fully explained. And here, Paul reveals in verse 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom of God, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I believe what Paul is referring to here is that Satan didn't realize that when he was motivating and instigating the scribes and the Pharisees to rise in rebellion against the Christ, to have him put to death, that when he was put to death, that was the very thing that sealed his doom. And the head of the serpent was crushed there at Calvary. Amen. Second Corinthians 5. Verse 14, Paul now going on further to reveal to us in the progressive revelation, for the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one die for all, then we're all dead. Here as we begin to open up the Pauline epistles with the height of progressive revelation, Paul reveals that the Redeemer was not just to die for the nation of Israel, but he was to die for the whole world, which was to be testified in due time through Paul. And he preached that among the Gentiles. Do you know, brethren, that the Apostle Paul never denies that Christ is the Redeemer of Israel? There's a connection. We see many distinctions in our teaching and preaching, and that's good, the distinction between prophecy and mystery. But there is a connection with the person of Christ and the Redeemer that he is not only the Redeemer of Israel, but he is also the Redeemer of the body of Christ. And we see that as he come into the world and as he died on the cross through now a further progressive revelation to Paul, we see that the scope is just not Israel, but when God was in Christ, he was reconciling the world unto himself. Christ died for the sins of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl that will ever live on the face of the earth. He's made a provision for all, but only those who believe God's Redeemer and in that Redeemer and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And here, as we look at the Pauline revelation, we see that we have the same Redeemer, but we see a progressive revelation that the scope is broadened through Paul. And in a closing thought in verse 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There 
as Christ died on that cross nearly 2,000 years ago, we see at that point the sins of the world, Israel included, was laid upon him. And Christ died for the sins of the world. And God, through the Pauline epistles now, hearkens to us. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We have the responsibility to preach the gospel. And as the gospel is preached, as man believes the gospel, that Christ died for his sins, was buried and rose again the third day, that he can be saved from the penalty of his sins. In Adam, all die. And we see that Christ has made a provision for the whole world, all. But only those who respond by faith will be saved. Amen. Are you saved this evening? Have you trusted Christ as your personal Savior? You know, there's only two persons in this entire universe that can answer that question. God and yourself. I believe you can know you're not saved. You have to first know you're not saved, that you're lost before you can be saved. Trust Christ this evening. We have a number of faithful brethren here that would gladly open the scriptures and show you God's wonderful Redeemer. Let's close in prayer. Our eternal Father in the heavenlies, how we rejoice in the wonderful, wonderful progressive revelation Father, how we pray this evening that we might never anticipate revelation, that we might understand that Paul's gospel was distinctive, that it was through the ministry of the Apostle Paul that he explained thy great plan of redemption, that simply by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be saved from the penalty of our sins. Lord, this evening, if there be just one among us or if there's ten among us that does not know Christ as their personal Savior, we pray that you might convict them of their sins through thy Holy Spirit, that this evening they might see their need of a Savior for the first time and believe and be saved. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, bless the remainder of this time to our hearts, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.